Welcome back to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. It has been a while, but I am still one of your co-hosts, Zach Clark, and still joined with me after many months of, of a break, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how have you been? What's going on? Yeah, we've had about a six-month uh, sabbatical, I think it is, and uh, this was not an intended sabbatical, but I guess life just got in the way of uh, recording our podcast and getting things going, and uh, we've made a commitment in this, I guess, end of financial year, start of a new year, in some ways cycle to kick things back off and uh, get back on the podcasting horse. So we'll see how it goes and hopefully we're a bit more committed to it than uh, we have been in the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, it's always tricky to balance these passion projects with, with everything else you've got going on in life. Whether it's you know social commitments, whether it's uh, you know work commitments, of course, and uh, you know just other passions we all pursue, they often take priority, and it doesn't help with our time zone differences that we have. But we know we're going to make it work. We have made a few changes, which we'll see um, if they help us streamline the process. But that's enough about that. That's not why we're here today. In fact, it's actually a really good intro to what today's topic is. Is around you know. You're our audience, you're our listener. How much should you care about the the way we do things and how we produce this product in terms of your assessment of the quality, right? Like, does this really matter to you or the behind the scenes or you just want a good podcast? Uh, and that's the topic we kind of want to talk about, but not about our podcast, but more about uh, video games. So let's dive straight in. So recently, there was an article on the website Game World Observer, which was effectively collating a series of tweets started by a developer, and apologies if I butcher the name, Zalavia Nelson Jr., uh, who works at, and I believe may even be the head of Strange Scaffold, a studio that's done Space World, Oregon Trading Simulator, and is currently working on El Paso elsewhere. Um, he's quite a sort of vocal developer and personality on Twitter at the moment. Might be X by the time you listen to this. Maybe the site's moved. We don't know yet. But anyway, we'll keep calling it Twitter. And maybe he'll tweeting. relocate to threads. Or threads, uh, blue sky, look, who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll follow the trend eventually as well. But he was talking about the upcoming Baldur's Gate 3, which is very close to release, uh, and effectively discussing how, I'm going to use his words exactly, just because I think it's important, uh, but he wanted to push back against the idea that for gamers it would result into a race standard for RPGs going forward in terms of, I guess, criticism of other RPG games. Uh, and as you know from previous episodes, um, Brendan in, uh, in particular, but also me, are big fans of RPGs. And so I think it's a really interesting concept because he's effectively saying that consumers and I presume also reviewers shouldn't, I guess, change their expectations or how they view future RPGs after playing Baldur's Gate 3 and presumably because it's going to be a very high quality game you know Larry in the studio that's working on it has made some fantastic games in the past uh, the Divinity Original Sin games uh, and Baldur's Gate 3 looks like it's going to be potentially their best quality product that they've made to date uh, and he's just saying it's, yeah, it's not fair that if this comes out everyone loves it that that's now what people expect out of RPGs going forward and he got a lot of support from other developers 
as well, which again, the article on Game World Observer has collated. Uh, again, talking obviously about a lot of things like the rise in game development costs and the like, and how this is this particular game was created, I guess, with a very unique set of circumstances that allow it to be what it's what it's likely going to be when we find out when the full version comes out next week. Potentially, listener, you already know. Maybe you're listening to this while you're playing the game. But that's, you know, I don't want to necessarily go into that specific example too much. I more want to talk about this concept of, is it logical? Is it reasonable? And is it what should reviewers and consumers be doing is, is actually taking into consideration these sort of meta factors to a game when uh, assessing its quality and then potentially speaking about the quality or recommending or not recommending games to other people because at the end of the day, a product or a game or a piece of art is what it is at at the end. It is a thing that you can look at and play and you don't need to know anything about who developed it, how it was developed, how much money it cost or anything. And you could potentially make comments around its quality or whatever to, to other people. Again, maybe just a friend if you're not a, a game critic. But we want to explore that concept as to whether that's what we should be doing as particularly reviewers, I think, is, is probably the more interesting of the two. And again, as both of us have been reviewers in the past, haven't reviewed things for a while, but we have a bit of context of what it's like to be on that side of the equation. And then also, again, still touch on the consumer side. But uh, yeah, Brendan, I might just throw to you first off, generally that, that sort of article, you just have a read over it. Any high-level thoughts um, that you want to bring up uh, and, and raise before we sort of go through a more breakdown of different types of concessions and reasons for concessions we might make? Well, I guess not to be flippant, and it'll probably come up again when we start talking about the different concessions and factors that take into account when assessing the quality of a game, but fundamentally, I think it comes down to the cost and the price of what a game sells at is generally what sets the benchmark on how it's perceived and how it's reviewed and how it's thought about and how it's, I guess, recognised in that if you're selling a 60 70 $80 game or $120 games in the Australian context, well, that's going to be judged as, well, this is a AAA release. It's going to be compared against all the other big blockbuster heavy hitters like your Starfields, like your Skyrims, like like all these games that are developed by your studios with 500 people working on games and sometimes multiple studios working on the same game. And then the other side of it is that, and I think why perhaps Baldur's Gate 3 has popped up as an example of this is that for many people, Larian is considered an indie developer studio in that Baldur's Gate 3 is developed and published by Larian. It's, it doesn't have outside, I guess, backing outside support. Well, they might. I don't really know what the structure of Larian Studios is, but I think there's that factor there that technically it's an indie studio. So I think maybe the discourse around it is about, well, other indie games shouldn't be compared to Baldur's Gate 3 because of the different expectations, the different situation that game is compared to other, I guess, smaller, lesser known indie development studios. So I get that. Those are my thoughts just from a very surface level going into the topic. Yeah, no, that, that, that seems about right. I mean, if you go through, again, you should check out the article and obviously click on the Twitter thread if, again, Twitter's still around at the point you're listening to this. Because it does go over some of the reasons that Larian is a very unique specimen, uh, I think, in terms of game develop studios. You know, the fact that it's highly specialized in these types of games and, again, it has such a 
unique structure in the way it operates, as well as, I guess, the access to enough capital to keep the studio alive and running for the last few years. Notably, the game's also been early access, so there would have been help from a, from a cost perspective there to keep some cash coming through to, to um, keep the lights on and the computers uh, running for the staff to code on and develop and do art and whatnot, and obviously then have money to take home and buy dinner. Uh, for their families and themselves. Uh, but again, I, I'm just not sure whether that's necessarily that important for us as reviewers or consumers to, to think about. Uh, but you brought up a good point, cost, and I'm, we'll stick to cost from the consumer's perspective and maybe we start with that one. You know, games can cost a variety of prices these days. Back, you know, gone are the days where games typically cost the same price Full price, you know, ninety nine ninety five, whatever it is in Australia, or sixty dollars has been the standard in America for a long time. Now, thanks to digital distribution, games can cost anywhere from nothing to to potentially above and beyond what we would consider the the standard price. You know, one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty Aussie dollars is not that uncommon to see. And there's nothing really stopping anyone from setting any price level they want. Uh, beyond any weird restrictions that maybe Steam or, or Nintendo have or whoever's the, the digital store owner. From a reviewer's perspective, in your opinion, how important is it to factor in what the consumer's being asked to pay when assessing a game? Is it a must-do? Is it a maybe? I'm keen to get your thoughts, Brendan, and maybe your own thoughts on how you maybe tackled that concept in any reviews you did in the past. I think that that's a multifaceted question in many ways because as a reviewer, when you approach a game, anyway, from my perspective, price does play a part in that you judge a game based on, I guess, what's it, what it is offering, what the scope of the game is, what it's trying to do. And often the price is set in that implicit direction of the game. For example, an indie game on the Nintendo switch eShop and selling for five dollars i'm going to approach from it with a different critical lens than a 60 dollar blockbuster game that's not to say that well if the game's bad if both games are bad well they're both going to receive bad reviews it's not i'm not going to judge the five dollar game less harshly than the 60 dollar game because of the price but what i'm trying to say is i think the expectations are definitely different in that your expectations of a big blockbuster game is going to be different than a game that costs five ten dollars, and I think that's implicit in a lot of ways that reviewers approach games. In that, if you go through review review websites and you look at how an individual reviewer tackles a big game and tackles a smaller game, I think there's different expectations there fundamentally to how it's been appraised and how it's being reviewed. And I I think that's a common sense thing. I think that's that's actually a good thing in that. Well, consumers are going to take it into account because it costs different. It's a different cost proposition. It's a different opportunity cost. If you're thinking about buying the latest Assassin's Creed or you're thinking about buying the latest Shovel Knight game that costs a fraction of the price. Like, I might really love Shovel Knight games and I don't like Assassin's Creed, so it's a no-brainer. But if I'm a general consumer that I'm not quite sure what I want, but the reviews are telling me, well, this game's really good and this game's not so good. I'll go with the game that's receiving better critical praise, and then perhaps it'll be, oh, the, well, it's cheaper, so I'll definitely buy that game. Or, like, then cost might come into it. So I think cost and quality, of course, there's a symbiotic relationship there. I think a, a 
example I think about is in the Metroidvania space because there's a lot of Metroidvanias mm-hmm. done by indies, but we still get the occasional big budget one. And I mean, I really will keep it to Nintendo and and get this in the previous episodes of the podcast. Metroid Dread came out you know a few years ago now, obviously is at a full price. Uh, compare that to something like uh, Hollow Knight. Which made by two people ostensibly, and and I think you know cost was probably I don't know the exact cost, but I'd say it's somewhere in the the half, of, you know maybe half at most of of what Dread would have cost when both launched, and that's a really like interesting thing to compare because again you've got two people in Adelaide making a really top tier game versus an entire team of people in Spain plus some people in Japan. Uh, with probably quite a large uh, budget, or at least larger than potentially Hollow Knight did from its Kickstarter. You know, if I was to ignore the cost of both those games, I would 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 almost put them very close to each other, almost on par. Personally, I know a lot of people would say Hollow Knight's better, or or maybe someone say Metro Dread is better. To me, they're they're very close in in quality. But then, yeah, if you factor in the price, you would have to give the edge to Hollow Knight because again, it is that much. You know more affordable like again if i was to have a friend come up to me and say i want to try my first metroidvania which one do i go for it's hard to necessarily justify recommending dread over hollow knight purely from a cost perspective uh unless i had other reasons like maybe they're scared of bugs in which case i'd say well actually they both probably got bugs so maybe <laughs> don't play either. but you know ignoring that you know they don't like black and white aesthetics maybe in you know, that's that's a less of a a, a goer for for Hollow Knight, which is very very um two toned for at least the start of the game. But that's it's. But at the same time, I don't know if I was reviewing either of them, I would think too hard about the cost, which is not intentional. It's just, I guess, to me. So first off, a lot of reviewers get games for free. We know that that's either because they work for a company that's buying the games for them, or alternatively, and more commonly, if you're with a, a bigger site, the the developer or the publisher is providing the code or the for the old days you got the physical copies um, mailed out to you. That's one aspect, but also I think to me, as a gaming enthusiast, as someone who is very fortunate to have uh, full time employment, I'm not as constrained by money as I am time necessarily. Mm. So. To me, my, my primary consideration for what I'm going to play is more which do I think I'm going to enjoy more with the time I have, not how much is it going to cost for me personally. So I do think if in my reviews, if I was writing reviews today, I don't know if I'd, again, this is more subconscious than conscious, but I don't think I'd give proper weighting to the cost as, as perhaps I should because, again, as you said, Brendan, a lot of consumers would be looking to reviews to decide where does their limited budget go to. Yes, and I think it goes back to my point about expectation in that I think in many ways what a game is priced at is setting the expectation of the scope of that game in that I think for many reasons indie developers do price their games lower than, well, games that are pub- published by, are backed by big publishers because, well, yes, their costs are lower, but because their costs are lower because their resources are more constrained than those big uh, publishers and big developers, the game is by necessity going to not be on the same scale as those big games. They aren't going to have the graphical output. They aren't going to have the big, well, like your cyberpunks, your um, starfields. It won't have. It, they won't be big spectacles. Like they, they still might. They'll still might be games like your Hollow Knights that are excellent and do other things really well and 
they've probably spent many, many years behind the scenes developing those games. But that, in many ways, that's why price is important because it is a mechanism for indie developers to set that expectation of, well, we have a really good game here, but the reality of the situation is we have not had the same resources to put into the game. Therefore, well, we don't think you as consumers should pay the same amount for our game as the other games. In many ways, it's a bit narrow-minded for my part in that I don't think it's a benevolent thing that they say, oh, well, we think you shouldn't give us the money, that you, you shouldn't give us the same amount of money as the other people. Uh, I guess the other thing to consider with the price aspect is I, I suppose there's a valid way of reviewing as well where you view games more like an art form. Uh, I mean, they are an art form. I'm not disputing that. And that's my, I, I agree they are. But uh, you don't necessarily have to consider the price if that's the way you want to review games. And this isn't necessarily a review aspect, but when I think about things like Game of the Year, which is, again, not a review, but it's kind of like a endorsement of quality in some sense, right? So it's kind of like a review in a way. At least it can serve the same purpose for certain people, right? Uh, I'm not sure how much things like cost to the consumer get factored into that. I would almost imagine it's, it's very little. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Again, maybe someone is collating a game of the year list, again, based on what your budget is for Christmas at that, at that time of year. But I think most people are just trying to say, hey, ignoring what it costs for someone to buy and get access to this game, I think this is the best game that was produced in this 320 whatever days of, of the year, uh, or was not produced within that time yet, released. Which I oh. guess is valid, but I guess the problem is there's not a lot of disclosure, I suppose, as to how someone's approaching reviews necessarily. I don't think a lot of websites put up a um, clear mindset position on whether they're trying to view this as artwork or view this as a product and it's unfortunate because obviously games are both a product you can buy and an artwork but I think that's just something to factor into when reading reviews that again some people yeah. might be taking that perspective and not not to go back to the same drum on beating but I think there's that implicit aspect of and I think you see it in examples like we mentioned Hollow Knight in that reviewers will approach it from the perspective of, well, this is an indie game, but it's really, like, it's really, really good. And that colours their ex- expectation because they weren't expecting it to be as good as it is. Mm. Whereas if they're playing, I don't want to keep on saying it, but if they play a Starfield and it's really good, they'll say, well, this is really good. Well, it should be because it's spent over five years in development, Bethesda and Microsoft have millions upon millions into it like yes it's impressive that they've achieved this but in many ways hollow knight is more impressive because there's two people in adelaide two people no one's ever heard of in adelaide that have made one of the best games of the last five ten years so that's what i'm trying to get to with the expectation Mm. angle from my perspective in that i think and i don't think reviewers are going to consciously realize they're doing it or even consciously state it in their review or if they have a review guidelines in their website, they'll put it down there. But I think there is that approach of you're going to be like, and I think it's natural that even as a consumer, if we take away our critic hat, that you're going to be more impressed by a game that has a lot less behind it in terms of resources, in terms of development um, time and money 
than a game that you expect is going to be good. And I think the same goes for other media, like like your films and the like. That there's an expectation when you go see an indie film versus you go see a Marvel film. Though these days, the expectations of going to see a Marvel film are probably more negative than positive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really valid point. Because I, th- I think that's really what we're coming down to, right? Is what concessions should there be concessions made to the opinions of games? And I think the reality is, you're right; they are, whether we do it consciously or not. And I think what you said about the impressive piece is something I want to delve into a bit more. Because you're right. Again, as someone who's tuned into the gaming space, a gaming enthusiast, I know a lot. Not a lot, but like I know more than say your standard human being as to who developed the game, aspects of the team size, just a, a couple of nuggets. You know, not a lot, but enough to know. Wow, again, Hollow Knight. How crazy is it that such a small team made that game? That's really cool. Uh, and I would, you know, if someone said to me to talk about Hollow Knight, that would probably be a factor that comes into my discussion. Like, how impressive is it? that such a small team made such a high-quality and well-regarded game. But uh, at the same time then, you know, again, if it was my friend saying to me, hey, which game is better? What should I spend my time on or what should I spend my money on? I, that's where the question starts to change a bit because it's like, well, am I going to throw a bone to, again, the studio that, did something incredibly unbelievable in terms of producing such a high-quality game with few resources? Or am I going to just say, but at the end of the day, I think this other game, which, yes, was made by a megacorp, is better, and that's what I think you'll enjoy more, or I just think is the higher-quality uh, experience. Because you know, when I'm talking to my friends, I am probably going to go, unless, unless I know my friend values supporting smaller companies or smaller developers, I am probably going to lean towards, I know you just want the best thing in, available to you right now in a particular genre, and I think that is this, regardless of how it came to exist. <laughs> yeah, so that, I think we can think of plenty of examples that fall in that latter category, and I'm cheeky enough to say, well, Larian's previous games, like Divinity Original Scene 2, would fall into that category, because yes, now I guess the discourse has changed and we can talk about I know we don't want to go into Larian too much in this episode because this isn't a game about Baldur's Gate 3 or Larian Studios, but their original games were backed on Kickstarter. They clearly didn't have all the resources on hand to build the games they wanted, so they used crowdfunding. Whether it was just a supplementary thing to supplement their income or to get outside funding, I don't know. We, and I don't think we know either that those are topics that are questions that really only Larry and Studios can answer. But, but nonetheless, they released a game that was very, very good and was on a lot of people's Game of the Year lists, despite the fact that it was from a studio barely anyone aside from RPG enthusiasts have heard of. And then the other example I think of that is just a game that stood out amongst the crowd and was people's outright Game of the Year a couple of years ago was... Disco Elysium, which is also an RPG and for many people set the standards of what a CRPG in the modern era should be, how storytelling in video games should be handled, all manner of questions. And I guess despite all the issues and fallouts from the studio behind that game that have come out in the last uh, 12 to 18 months and are still ongoing with various court cases in Europe, 
I, I think that is an example of a studio that clearly didn't have that much in terms, well, didn't have the same resources as a major AAA developer or publisher, but released a game that many people thought was all the best game in 2019 at release, wasn't it? Or was it 2020? I don't remember. It's either one or the other. I want to say 2019, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I can't, I can't um, remember if it was pre or after COVID, but it's around that yeah, it's, time period. It's still in that, that, that time is, is meaningless uh, uh, for the last few years and probably will feel so for, for a while. Or maybe it's just because we're uh, at the age we are. Who knows? Um, 2019. Sorry, just quickly people with it. 2019, uh, yeah. in, in October. So it's probably why. I think maybe the, the definitive edition came out the year after when it um, launched on consoles, which probably got another bit of attention. But uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Like, it's 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 interesting to see, I guess, that flip in expectation from once you were the underdog to now you're kind of like the top dog, right? Like we say, Larian or... I guess if you didn't know about all the drama happening with the um, Disco Elysium studio, one would assume that you would otherwise expect greatness out of the next game. But if you're that tuned into the, the discourse, you might now have some uh, uh, tempered expectations is probably the right term. But it, but yeah, it, it is interesting because, yeah, like it's, and it's, it's interesting because it comes back to a point you've made a few times now. We don't know as much as we like to think we know. Uh, certainly as as amateur games, you know, journalists or podcasts or whatever we are, as game enthusiasts, um, and even I think people in the media, they think that there, there will be a small handful of people who know a lot. I have no doubt that Jason Schreier, for example, knows a lot about budgets and stuff for certain studios that he's got great relationships with, either in an official capacity or with an employee that's off the record. But the majority, you know, your standard IGN reviewer, I would say, does not know a lot in terms of how much do games cost to make. We get the occasional glimpse. Certain games make a headline, like a Call of Duty or whatever, but the 99% of games, I think it's a it's an unknown number. How many people worked on the game? You, again, an indie studio, you can probably tell because you can maybe get some data on their number of employees. But a megacorp, like, again, Call of Duty, like... How many people across the globe are touching a single Call of Duty game? It's, it's probably, I'm sure Activision struggle to keep track of it at some, at some time, let alone anyone external to the company, right? There are just so many things we assume or we fill in the blanks because of those perceptions of this is indie, this is AAA, this is AA, this is a successful company, this is a not successful company. But those could all be false assumptions right again they're very much just us thinking we know more than we do um one of my greatest frustrations uh, the last few years is seeing so many people uh on twitter talk inside baseball like they understand how these corps work um again pet peeve of mine but and then it's like oh you don't like i'm not saying i do but like i'm saying none of us do <laughs> like stop pretending like you know how these work, unless you are actually the CEO, the head of development, or whatever, you, you do not know what's what's going on um, or why games turn out the way they are. And I think that's another problem that we face because I think that, again, those assumptions are flowing into our perception of, of how the games develop, and then it can flow back through to a review or, again, a, if you are so inclined, a recommendation to someone else in a more personal capacity. And I don't know how we stop that on a, on a wide scale. Uh, maybe it's just an unreasonable thing to even try and stop. 
<laughs> I suppose. I think in many ways it is. And to go back to the article and one of the issue, my bugbears I have from reading that article is that I think not the not the person who kicked it off, but one of the other developers quoted in that article on Twitter mentioned that effectively Baldur's Gate 3 shouldn't be considered as setting the standards of what an RPG should be because, well, it has all the resources behind it, has all the um, development power of Larian Studios behind it, and, well, it's not fair if a studio that has 30 to 40 people, their output is compared to Baldur's Gate 3. And not to say, or it's a tautology in saying it, but I, I do believe that a good game is a good game. And... I think both reviewers and consumers will recognise that, and I think that's what sets standards on what an RPG should be, what a particular game in a genre should be, and what, I guess, what level of standard and what they should be achieving within the constraints of the genre, what they should be doing. And I, and many of the games we have mentioned on this episode already are hallmarks of that. Hollow Knight has set standards for Metroidvanias, and as you said, it did not have the level of development resources behind it as Metroid Dread did, even though Metroid Dread came and released after Hollow Knight. Disco Elysium is the same. That has set the standard for how RPGs should approach storytelling, and there's plenty of RPG studios that have much more in terms of resources than Disco Elysium and have released games since Disco Elysium have come out. So I think... Standards aren't necessarily set by what is the most flashiest, what has the most resources behind it, because ultimately at the end of the day, just because I have billions and billions of dollars behind me doesn't mean I'm going to create the best game, best movie, best book, best skyscraper that is ever going to be built because I've thrown more money at it. There's always going to be other factors behind what makes something good or bad. And yes, money is a very important factor. Money, as you as you said at the start of the episode, it feeds your family. Money makes sure that you can run the heating or um, air conditioners, depending on what climate you live in. Money m- money means that you can feed yourself and you can actually survive uh, the world of capitalism that we live in in the uh, in the twenty first century. But it's it's just one factor amongst many, is what I uh, I, I believe, and I think it's. If Baldur's Gate 3 is the best RPG that has released ever, that is going to set the standards. And I don't think... I I, I think it's quite odd that developers even are trying to say, well, yes, it might be really good, but oh, of course it was going to be good because Larian Studios made it and they have all this money, they have all the resources, they have all the technical know-how, they have a, a, a veteran development team that have produced lots of lots of RPGs in that vein. So, of course, it was going to be good. I, I think that's a very simplistic mindset. And honestly, I thought developers would be, I guess, a lot more cognizant and open to all the other realities of game development out there than bigger is better, effectively. Is Well, that's how I read a lot of the discourse around that um, article and the tweets that have gone out surrounding that um, particular person's views, is, is that that's what it's devolved into, that, well... Yes, he, he's effectively right because we shouldn't all be judged against... We're all saying that Larian Studios is the leaders in what RPG development is like and, well, it's not fair for our games to be compared to theirs because effectively they have all these legs up that we don't. So that, yeah, that's I mean, our view. 
Well, I mean, I, 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 I know we, we weren't going to, but it's just hard not to right? go back to the article. I mean, one of the people quoted in is um, Josh Sawyer, who's quite well-known for being um, a studio design director at Obsidian, obviously another very massive player in the in the RPG space, right? Because of Eternity 1 and 2, probably direct competitors, I'd say, to Divinity Original Sin in some ways, um, or direct uh, comparable games. And again, Obsidian is now literally owned by Microsoft, which I can't imagine. Um, I know, obviously, there's approvals needed to access Microsoft's vault of money. It's not like you can just get the unlimited budget from them. But at the same time, the resources, you know, we ignore, don't view it as Obsidian, view it as Microsoft publishing games. You know, Starfield coming out in, the, in, the, in a month or so, also an RPG. Is it not fair to compare that to, to Baldur's Gate, given um, obviously Bethesda would have spent years working on it and then Microsoft would come in, bought the company and had plenty of cash to inject into whatever that game needed to get to where it needs to be. I don't see how it's unfair to compare future games from, from them, from you know, whether it's Bethesda or Obsidian, or just as I said, Microsoft in general or other massive publishers to to say Baldur's Gate. If anything, it's it's kind of the flip of the other way around. It's like how can Baldur's Gate three, which again is still a largely independent studio, a massive one now, probably compared to to what we normally think about when we think independent studios, but how is it achieving what I, I suspect could be wrong? But Microsoft's own recently bought, but still owned studios aren't going to hit those you know peaks, I suppose, in the genre. It just seems very funny to me that where um, I guess getting that sort of like defense mode, not from indie developers, who I get, you know, it would be a struggle as a small team to to match something of Baldur's uh, Gate 3's scale. But big publishers who are, in theory, capable of doing it if they put the money out the door, hire the right talent, and uh, ultimately, you know, push to, to create something that's of the same quality, if not even better. Yes, and there's the other factor of this, that, again, mentioned in the article, which we weren't going to focus on too much, which we nearly devoted the entire episode to, but <laughs> there's the aspect of early access in, in that I believe the person quoted in that article initially that was one of his points as to why Baldur's Gate 3 is different to other games in that it's had this long period, I think two or three years in early access. And I think that, that, that opens up the topic of, well, should we judge a game that has been in open access differently to a game that has not? Mm. Because it's not just games like Baldur's Gate 3 that are in early access. Early access is quite a common option for indie developers now. Hades was in early access and that was the game of the year for many people in 2020 2020 or 2021 i want to say 2020 for that one i think so yeah yeah yes but hades was game of the year for 2020 for many people and that was a well that was an indie game done in early access by a smaller studio so again that goes back to some of the previous points we were talking about but not to retread old ground but what i want to say is so early access is an option for a lot of different studios some are bigger indie studios, some are very, very smaller indie studios that have a game in early access. And sometimes games are in early access for over five years. There's there's games that are very popular out there that I think have been in early access for like the entire existence of, of the game and are very popular and have dedicated communities around it. 
Minecraft is a game that was famously in, well, not even early access. That was just a beta that they were selling and then getting feedback on and it went through there. I think it did go into early access technically. Yeah, well, I might be wrong. I probably am wrong. But to me, Minecraft is the game that effectively, mm. I'm going to say, launched that model. I am sure there is another game that did an early access model before Minecraft. But to me, it was the one that sh- showed the greatest success in doing it. And then I think really kicked off the um, the world we're in today where there are just so many early access games. And it makes a lot of sense. Again, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I do accounting. Um, I understand that uh, why profit is great if you don't have consistent cash flow uh, or enough cash liquidity in your, in your bank account. Uh, it doesn't matter how much profit you could make in four or five years' time when a game releases. Uh, if you run out of cash before then, you know, again, you're not going to have the money to pay for the for the lights to stay on. So it's a smart idea, early access from a business model perspective, to keep that cash flowing in. No issues with it. But I agree, as you've just said, Brendan, it is actually a really hot topic today because we're seeing such a we're seeing a lot of people, a lot of pub, uh, uh, publications, struggle with how do we review early access. A lot for years did not. Right, we didn't see too many reviews of early access games. The general consensus was, well, it's not done. And that's what the publisher or the developer saying. So even though we can play it and we can buy it, we're not going to review it. We might put up impressions, but we're not going to call it a review. That started to shift, I think, in the last few years. We are seeing some reviews for certain early access games. Obvious big example right now, Overwatch 2. Still in early access. You wouldn't know it, probably, <laughs> because... <laughs> It's effectively an update to a game that did release by a massive company, so I don't know why it needs early access, but it is. Uh, maybe it's open beta. Whatever. I don't know. It's, it's not called a fully released game yet by, by Activision Blizzard. But of course people reviewed it last year when it, when it came out because, again, we can go into a whole episode around the, I guess, the unfortunate reality of, of clicks driving what content gets made on, on, on websites, but, uh, it made sense to. If, I, to me, it makes sense to review Overwatch 2 at that point because that's the point when you're expecting people to switch over. It wasn't a pay-for game, so I can't say buy it, but switch over. I guess start spending money in the game. You can certainly purchase things in it, like I'm sure season passes and skins. And again, it's by a massive company, not by a small indie dev. So I think it was only fair game to, um, to review it at that point. And but there are there are others. I think even Baldur's Gate three, if you look, would have had some reviews done back when its early uh-huh. access first launched, and maybe even a few along the way. They're, they're not exclusive, and it's um going to plug another episode. How uh, listen to our fantasy critic uh, episode, uh, but that's a bugbear for us to play that game because it's very confusing as to how to deal with those situations. But it is an interesting one because it, it it all links there. It's all coming together. I feel like it's like all the loose ends, kind of like convulse in this particular pain point of early access because there's, there's so many aspects of cost and the fact that you can pay for these games so if you can pay for it why can't it be reviewed yes it's not finished but if i as a consumer can buy your game i can give you money i can't like you know, my refund options are as they are for a, a full price game basically is it not fair to get some sort of review to help determine is this something i want to go in on so I think that's a really, really good point around how do you, you know, and, and then as the reviewer, do you take into consideration that it's not done? And how do you do that effectively? It, it, it's a very complicated situation that I think 
is something more and more reviewers and publications need to think about because I don't think we've found the right answer yet other than the review in progress that you have to update. But even then, right, you have limited resources. Like, are you going to update a review in progress monthly, yearly? Mm. I don't know. I think that's why, not to go back onto old ground and previous episodes we've recorded, but why approaches to reviewing like Eurogamer does and like other outlets do in that they they've they've completely ensued review scores. Their review they still they still publish reviews they still write reviews but they are entirely written and yes they generally do have some of them will still have recommendations at the end of those reviews but they won't be on a scaled one to ten review score system which it goes back to fundamentally and I think it's it is sort of underpinning this entire discussion is that it is about people's expectations and impressions of games and how those impressions are set by games that people are well in this case developers are saying well our games effectively that this game shouldn't be seen as the be all end all for the genre because of the specific individual circumstances that have gone into making it which they themselves can't meet because of those unique circumstances that that goes back to like you have said at the very start of the episode quite rightly how games are reviewed how how us as consumers should view a particular game and make value judgments on, well, is this game worth, are both these games worth the same price? Because, well, one game had billions of dollars behind it and the other game was just one guy in a basement producing it. So shouldn't <laughs> I only have to pay like a dollar for that game? I think it, it, all these, I guess all these questions and all these answers go back to fundamentally how consu- how we as consumers perceive games. And I, I and, and I, that is a very interesting and, well, as we've proven, very multifaceted subject. Because I think ultimately there's more questions as there's more questions than answers, which is generally the case on complex yeah. topics. Most frustratingly, well, I think it's interesting because I think we have this really weird situation where I, it's, I again I have no data to back this up. This is purely my speculation here. For you, I would imagine most consumers. Uh, have very little knowledge, as I said, about games mm. and how they're yes. made or anything like that. So most consumers are going in with that perspective. They're just purely going, I want the best game I can get for my money or time or some other yes. or I, I like I like FIFA. I like Call of Duty. I'm going to buy those games. <laughs> they won't even yeah, really think correct. about the developers or the publishers or anything. They just no. they know games they, by the title, by the franchise. Correct. You know, they go into like Facebook groups and saying, I like these types of games. Someone give me a recommendation for a game like this. If, um, if they're not just sticking to the annual FIFA, Call of Duty, whatever. Not FIFA anymore. Was it EA Football FC? EA FC? I don't know. I think it's still in the UK. Report back to me. I think it's still (laughs) FIFA in in some places, but I don't, I don't really know. I'm, I'm confused by it. No, I think, I think that if FIFA license is now with another company, so the, the FIFA, is not EA anymore. EA Sports FC. I've just googled it. Ah, EA Sports yes, FC right. is now what it's called. Anyway, that's that's a topic for another day, or probably not. So I'm not hopefully, hopefully never. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, that's probably most consumers. I don't think most video game publications, or even really any, are necessarily writing reviews for that person though. They're they're writing it for us because we're the ones that are primarily 
the bread and butter clickers of these of these articles. I don't think again, you know, like your average consumer maybe clicks on a cup an IGN review once in a blue moon to just get a a, a general uh, idea of what to buy themselves with with their gift card they got for their birthday. But the people clicking the review sites more regularly are the enthusiasts who know a bit more. I think that then ultimately reflects through to the reviews because the again reviewer knows who they are writing for, which is people like us, but they're also probably people like us prior to getting that job. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that that's how they tackle it. Um, again, it could also just be subconscious. I'm not saying they're like, you know, planning all this out in, in how they write things. It's just the, the model has resulted in this outcome, I suppose. Again, capitalism at work has resulted in this being how things are for that space. It is my, my personal speculation. Again, I haven't got the data. I'm not sure if anyone has done data <laughs> research on this. Probably not. But I, I suspect that'd be the case. But it's... um, Get the focus groups going, a, Zach. Yeah, well, we, we could still see if um, I can find a university that's uh, invested to fund my PhD in it um, or something like that. <laughs> um, probably not. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting space because it can... It, it, it's really made me reflect on the differences in how I would talk about games to, again, someone like you, to our audience, um, but how I would talk about them to my like less engaged people I know. Like if a colleague at work was asking me for game recommendations, the games I would recommend would, would be done in a very different way to how I would talk or recommend them to to enthusiasts um, yes. or gamers, however you want to refer to yourself. <laughs> All lead, all roads lead back to expectations, which is the drum I'm beating this episode, as I've said before, that each audience will have different expectations of of video games, effectively, as you said. Um, an enthusiast will approach a game in a very different way than someone who doesn't consider themselves an enthusiast. And I think that's why there's particular games out there that make, make such an impact that they do is because they are able to bridge that very divide and we have seen that with Breath of the Wild and now with Tears of the Kingdom that these are games that that I guess appeal to both more casual gamers and enthusiasts and those are and, and I think that that also is relevant to the topic because well how do we compare those how, how do we compare those games to other games in, a, in similar genres and I think the reality is well we do compare those games and generally we compare them unfavorably that there were a lot of games that were similar to Breath of the Wild after Breath of the Wild released and in and some people will have hot takes that will say oh, oh Immortals Phoenix Rising is better than Breath of the Wild or or statements like that but for most most gamers most people with an interest in video games would generally just state oh no Breath of the Wild is a more significant game it's a yes Immortals Phoenix Rising or or um, Genshin Impact, or all these other games that are, have taken influence from Breath of the Wild aren't as good as Breath of the Wild. But, well, I think ultimately they're still good games in their own right. And that's why I fundamentally disagree with the the implicit argument of that article, is that it's trying to argue that, well, Baldur's Gate 3 is going to be on a pedestal and no, no other game can approach it. And I think that that is a that's a false dichotomy. I think that is a that's just an argument that doesn't really stand up because 
there's nothing wrong with other games being influenced by Baldur's Gate, doing similar things to Baldur's Gate. And we can ultimately sit back and say, well, I think Baldur's Gate 3 is still, like, it was still more of a game-changing game for me as a gamer for my experience playing it, or I still, I enjoyed it more than the other game. But that's not saying I didn't enjoy playing the other game. That's not saying that I don't value that other game and I, I won't recommend it to other people because maybe I thought, oh, it's still a very good game. And if you like Baldur's Gate 3, well, you should play this other game. And I, I think that is also a valuable fact a valuable aspect as well to um, think about is that there's a there's a reason why there's games that try to copy or take inspiration or inspire from other games is because clearly that game has been successful that game has a following people like that game i want people that also feel similar feelings towards my game so of course i'm going to be inspired and of course i'm going to try to do similar things to what that other game did and fundamentally at the end of the day i might not have the resources at hand to do what that game did but that's okay i might be able to do something better than that other game did in in a subtle way that consumers will appreciate gamers will appreciate and they will mem- they will remember my game to the same degree as those other games like and i think that's what's great about the gaming industry that there is that flexibility there and to your point there's so many different types of consumers and types of gamers that ultimately good games will shine through. People don't necessarily will have expectations based on, oh, why isn't this game like Baldur's Gate 3? Because Baldur's Gate 3 came out five years ago and did all these things and this game came out in 2020 or 2030 and isn't as good. I Like, there are people out there that will have takes like that, but I don't think that is the, that is the majority. Yeah, I, I think it's like, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think I think you're right. Most people, like, I mean, again, if we think about someone who really knew anything, uh, sorry, really didn't know much about how these games were, were developed. Um, sorry, weird, weird uh, uh, stumble there. Um, but, like, you know, again, say if a friend of mine jumped in and played Baldur's Gate 3 and they came to me and they said, wow, why is this so good? Um, and then I said to them, well, it's because, you know, again, it's made by this really experienced team. It's made by their, their specialists and they just had, you know, all these particular circumstances that are unique to the studio that allowed for this, for this, you know, diamond just to, to form, I suppose. And that's probably why you're not going to see something like this for a while. I think their reaction will be either one of two things like, oh, that sucks. I guess I'll wait for the next thing. Or as you said, they will be willing to concede and play things that, like, yeah, they might not quite feel reaches the same peak, but they still feel scratch the itch pretty well and they still really enjoy it. You know, I think I think while it may raise what they think RPGs are capable of, it doesn't preclude them from enjoying things that aren't at that peak, if that makes sense. I, I think most people know that, like, the best games in any particular genre aren't the base. Because I think that's a big key thing in the article. People keep referring to this should not set the baseline. And I think I think it's pretty safe that it won't. I think, again, people aren't necessarily going and saying that Zelda is the baseline for open world games. Because there have been successfully, from a financial people buying it or a new perspective, open world games since then. There's certainly people who love more games to borrow from that design ethos mm. and get closer to it. I'm not saying that's not true. 
but it, but they haven't stopped enjoying other types of open world games um, or ones that haven't hit the same highs as as the Zelda games you mentioned. So I think that's something that I don't think that if, if the general fear by this, this these developers in the article is everyone's just going to be like a baby who like picks up their their like old toys and just smash them because they're like this is not as good as as Baldur's Gate. I'm never playing you know <laughs> you know Fallout Three or I'm never playing Skyrim or I'm never playing you know uh, whatever else. I, don't know. I just go Elysium ever again because Baldur's Gate's just just ruined them all for me. It's just not going to happen. I don't, I don't think. Uh, I, again, I think we'll see that this year. We'll see, I think. I think really this last few months, this this next sort of coming few months and the previous couple of months are really fascinating because I think we had Diablo Four, generally well liked. Again, we can discuss if we want to uh, listen to our boycott episode about how that should factor in these kinds of decisions or not. But that's that's beside the point here. Uh, and I would say. Well, it's different to Baldur's Gate, and again, different to the third game I'm going to bring up. Again, uh, it's still an RPG, or at least RPG enough to be comparable. Then we've got Baldur's Gate, and then we're going to have Starfield. And it's going to be interesting to just see how the opinions on those three games do get sort of influences each other. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think anyone is going to be able to look at them purely siloed if you're, uh, again, uh, uh, working for a publication, you've played or reviewed all of them. And then you're getting into things like game of the year discussions. You're naturally going to start comparing them, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how if someone's enjoyment of Starfield is lower because they started with Baldur's Gate before that a month before, and they're so fresh off it. Uh, again, even though they're going to be very different RPGs, like one plays more like an FPS, one plays again more like a I'd say a traditional. Um, is CRPG the right term? Like point yes. and click kind of RPG? CRPG. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think people will still compare the two in many ways because they do fall under that same broad banner. And luckily, you know, Final Fantasy was smart. We're like, we're getting out of the RPGs. We're action adventure now, baby. Don't compare us to Baldur's Gate. Um, but anyway, um, I think, but I think what it will show is, yes, people will compare them and think about them in relation to each other. But there's still people are still going to buy and play and enjoy all these games. Like people are not going to stop playing Diablo Four because Baldur's Gate is better. They're going to stop playing Diablo Four because Activision put out a bad patch, or Blizzard, or whoever. Both, I guess, it's one company put out a bad patch, and everyone hates it. Uh, that's why they're going to stop playing it. And then people are going to not buy Starfield. I think Starfield's probably still going to review well, and I think it's going to sell well. But people aren't going to be like, nah, like, Baldur's Gate too good. I'm not, not interested in Starfield. Might be people are still finishing Baldur's Gate and, like, I don't have the time. I'll, I'll check out Starfield later. But if they're generally interested in it, they're still going to they're still gonna buy it. Uh, and I think that's true of, again, smaller indie RPGs as well. Like, um, Sea of Stars, I think, comes out fairly soon. I don't... I hope that game doesn't see a massive dip in sales because there's too much going on in the market, but... I, I do think it will review well, and I do think it will sell well for what it is. Um, mm-hmm. as a as a, again a very unique, a different flavor of RPG to all these others. So I think to your point, it, it's it's it can be a bit of like a rising tide raises all ships. Yes, there will be a little bit of of cannibalism going on between all these games, but that that's kind of just true of every game. It, it doesn't even have to be an RPG to see that cannibalism take place. Like um. 
again, Zelda has consumed my gameplay time for the last, uh, when did it come out? May? And what are we in July? Like three months almost, um, two, three months. Um, and I've just stopped. I didn't buy Street Fighter, for example. I want to play Street Fighter. I'll probably get Street Fighter and I'll play the heck out of that weird ass single player <laughs> mode that it has. But, but my, the, at the end of the day, I was like, I only have so many hours of gameplay time <laughs> per day. And I'm going to subtract my podcasting time and add to that, which is why the podcast has really not been done for the last couple of months. But I'm not going to waste, not waste, but spend time on Street Fighter now. Because I, I know I just want to play Zelda. I'm just that's that's what I primarily wanted to play. And I think that's something just to I guess keep in mind that I don't think one game can go out there and completely ruin people's views of other games so so broadly. No, and I think you touched on an interesting aspect there briefly in terms of game of the years. In that that is that is not a genre specific designation that. A game of the year is generally compared to, well, it's in the title. It's compared to every game that released in that year, and it's a purely subjective thing in that different people will have different criteria on what their game of the year is, and then that will transfer to the different awards shows that are out there and the different different websites that give out that designator of game of the year. But just because my game is game of the year and your game isn't doesn't mean no one enjoyed your game. Doesn't mean that your game was a bad game. Your game might have been everyone's second favourite game of the year. And I think that, that that is something worth... I think that very much expands upon your argument of a good game is a good game. That just because one game might be considered slightly better or significantly better than other games, it might, this game might be considered game, a game changer that very much changes what a game in that genre means and what a game in that genre should do doesn't mean that it invalidates the quality of everything else that has come before or after it. And in some ways, I just think that's a no-brainer and that's in many ways common sense. That, And I, I think ultimately consumers understand that. Consu- consumers ultimately, well, I don't really want to say consumers, gamers ultimately play games for entertainment that, Yes, their favourite game might be Breath of the Wild, might be Tears of the Kingdom, and it might, in your case, it might consume all their gameplay for three, four months, but that doesn't mean that that's the only game they want to play. They still want to experience other experiences. They still want to play other games. They still want to try a Diablo 4. They still want to try a Final Fantasy 16. They still want to try a Sea of Stars. Like, those are games that interest them for perhaps other reasons, um, or similar reasons, it can be a whole manner of different, um, a different um, reasons behind wanting to play a game. Like, I might really like RPGs, so I'll play them all. I'll play Baldur's Gate. I'll play um, Starfield. I'll play Spellforce Four. I'll play <laughs> all manner of different things. And the latest Atelier game, number seven with with New Girl, whatever. Yes. <laughs> exactly, I'll, I'll play them all because I, that's my favourite genre and I, I get different things out of playing all those different games even though, like, yes, they're in the same overarching genre but never forget that there's sub-genres in all those genres as you said, as you quite rightly say about, well, Baldur's Gate is a, a CRPG, a computer RPG, very different to a Starfield which is a more first-person RPG in the vein of other Bethesda games that, these aren't equal games, but yes, they're in the same genre. 
yes, they'll try to do similar things in terms of storytelling and world building and setting, but like fundamentally they are very different. And like, yes, it's purely subjective. It's purely arbitrary. It can it can sound inane to most people, but everyone's going to have a different perspective and different opinions on what makes a good game good and why they enjoy particular games. And sure, there's there's always going to be examples and games that everyone agrees is a good game, but often there's different there's different um, reasons underpinning that designation. And ultimately, I think, well, ultimately that that's sort of what's on the table at the moment. That's what's on the table when it comes to reviewers, when it comes to gamers, how they perceive different games. That I think it's quite, it's very calculating. It's very mathematic if we're trying to break this down into a, well, these are, these are the criteria you must consider when you think you like a game or when you're judging a game. That these are the criteria to judge a game and we have to consider how many people made it, we have to consider the budget, we have to consider the development time, we have to consider whether it was in early access or not. I think that's those criteria are as arbitrary as any other criteria that you're setting yourself to judge a game on. Like, I think video games are more than the sum of its parts, and I think you can try to get very mechanical, very scientific about the like what makes a game a game, but I think that completely misses the point when it comes to critically assessing a game. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it funnily, it's, it's so funny because when you list them out there as bullet points, I think everyone would agree that it's absurd to factor in those those statistics, those facts about a game's development into your review. I, I don't think any publication would, would ever consider doing that and I don't think any developer would genuinely believe you should do that personally maybe i'm wrong but again shouldn't speak in absolutes i'm sure someone <laughs> on both sides will come out and prove me wrong but but I, don't, I think generally most people go yeah you're right that doesn't make sense but then as we said i think even though it doesn't make sense it is something we are doing subconsciously and i just don't think we'll ever stop that and it all comes back to i think every time that expectation piece it just it's it's almost impossible to remove that from from people's reviews because unless you put someone in a a room and lock them up and give them no access to the internet and then just feed them games and say play this and tell me if you think it's good if you're in the games media or you're a game enthusiast you probably just through osmosis uh learn bits and pieces here or there that will tweak those expectations and then as a result tweak the feelings you have when you play a game because ultimately a review tends to come down to how did you feel when you played it what were the emotions what were the thoughts that came up in your mind and that subconscious element of like man this is really good but you don't realize your brain's kind of saying this is really good but i also know that this was made by one guy who has has only one like pinky finger and he was trapped in a cave uh, after you know getting in an accident and he made this game that way like it, it does just feed into that like impressed emotion which can often also result in a, in a just a, some sort of positivity right and that will will come through in your review so it's it's a 
it's it's kind of somewhat unfortunate. And you know, that's why the idea everyone keeps throwing around of we need objective reviews is just nonsense. It doesn't exist. It can't happen. Mm-hmm. It's literally impossible. And I'm sorry if you if you think otherwise, but you just that's one of the few things I will be definitive on that you're just wrong <laughs> in that case. Um, if you think it is possible to have objective reviews of anything, um, uh, yeah, that, I think that's just the reality we live in. I couldn't agree more, particularly on your last point. I won't get into it too much because I don't want to derail this discussion any further. But I think it, it is a no-brainer that I think, well, this is why I know you and I will always recommend people to, when you're looking for reviews on particular games, I think it's an, it's quite common to find a reviewer that you particularly like and that's who you're going to read their reviews of or you'll have a particular outlet that you think is generally quite, I guess, well, aligns to what you think is an enjoyable game and that you'll take their opinion into account more than others because, well, you like similar games to that outlet, that reviewer. And that's no different to getting recommendations from your friends. That's no different to getting recommendations from Twitter. That it's it's a human it's a human element fundamentally that will surround ourselves with people that share similar opinions and thoughts. And that's not to say we're all in, I guess, we're all in bubbles that are um, echo chambers. But at the same time, it's it, it's difficult to argue against the fact that well, likes attract likes. That so we're going to value if if my best friend tells me you must play this game, Brendan, it's really good. I'll consider that more than if a stranger on the street walked by shouting, play my latest game that I've released. Like, we we take into account... There, there's all different aspects that we take into account when we consider whether we'll play a game and whether we like that game. And that's... I think that encapsulates our entire argument over the last hour, that hmm. well, you, you can't... You can't, mythology, you can't create a methodology. You can't create criteria. Like, those things can be tools, and they are very useful tools, and they can help you examine whether you whether whether a particular game or not, I guess, meets different expectations you have compared to other things, other games you've played in your experience. And sure, it, it's no different to when you walk out of a, um, of a movie and someone asks you, oh, what did you think of that movie? And you'll say, oh, that's about a seven or eight out of ten. Like that is a purely arbitrary designation. Like that 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 is meaningless. But people generally know implicitly what you mean by that. If you say a movie, if you say, "Oh, that's an eight out of ten for me," like most people will say, "Oh, so it's pretty good then." Like there's sure there's I guess different there's different societal dynamics at play. There's different there's different things. Um, I guess that have built up that people understand what you mean by throwaway lines like that. And those are all different things that go into this conversation. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I think to that, as much as also finding people who, you know, as you're saying, understand your taste or align to your tastes about the games themselves. If there are certain concessions that are important to you that aren't about the game, but uh, how it's made or anything like that, you could probably also seek out people who make similar concessions, you know. You may have noticed on this podcast, a lot of the time I bring up or uh, try to promote Australian-made games because I like helping in any small way the Australian game industry. Not that it just seems to need much help. It's been kicking a lot of goals in the last few years in, in, um, in the indie space. 
and that but that's something I value. I like playing good Australian games, and so I make sure I tune into typically other Australian journalists who bring to light those games a bit more frequently than uh, the abundance of American media that is otherwise available to me. Now, do they necessarily review games better or worse because they're Australian? I don't know. Again, I tend to think none of them would consciously do that, but subconsciously, as I said, I think it probably does happen. Um, but again, I don't mind that because I am also probably, when I'm playing that game, having the same subconscious trickery occurring, right? Yes. So if anything, it's, it's the right outcome for me knowing that I value that. If you don't value that, if you don't give a crap about where a game's made, uh, you don't, it doesn't have to be your home country, you just, just whatever, as long as it's good, then, then obviously you want to avoid people who put a lot of emphasis on that. And, um, that's just, you know, another aspect of things to consider, I think, because, because I think I've, we've now probably concluded, well, I, I, and if you disagree, Brendan, but I think our general conclusion is no one should consciously be factoring in these outside factors to their assessment of the final product but subconsciously it's going to happen regardless <laughs> in some capacity um is, is i think where we we broadly land on it oh exactly that ultimately these things are the sum of their parts that everything goes into it and something comes out of it something will emerge and whether that thing emerges is the best game ever or is just an average game that will be forgotten in a couple of years is comes down to all different manner of factors and different aspects. And, like, these are creative endeavours. Video games are, more well, yes, they're entertainment, but there's a creativity that goes into making them. And you can't bottle creativity. You can't, you can't just uh, make sure you hit all particular targets and you'll create something that everyone's going to enjoy and that is going to be a very, like, uh, I guess is going to be the hallmark of that particular type of video game. It just doesn't work like that. It's not as simple. And I think that is ultimately what we both agree with and what we've been banging on about is that it's very, it's a lot more complex than saying, than having this take of, and having this viewpoint of, well, you can't compare. Effectively, it's either you compare games, whether you enjoy them or not, which is purely arbitrary, or you state that you can't compare games because they're all very different and and it's meaningless and it also it's harmful to try to compare two games and say one's better than the other. And that, I'd say that, that 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 is not necessarily a viewpoint that doesn't have merit. Like I think that goes back to, well, what is the purpose of reviews and what is the, the purpose of one to ten review scales and a whole manner of different different topics and some of them we've touched on before some we might talk about in the future but i think it it is a very it's a very complex moving topic and i think ultimately ultimately criticism critical criticism opinions are all arbitrary and i don't want to mean i don't want to end on the point that that means they're all meaningless because i think they have a lot of meaning and there's a lot of importance that can be gained out of asking what Asking people and finding out what people think about particular things, I think that is fundamentally important. But at the same time, at the same time, we can't be mechanical about it. We can't create these rigid criteria that say these are what we're judging games on. This is what's more important than other things because it can be very situational. Correct. 
And again, I think to any developer who is fearful that whether it's Baldur's Gate or a different game is going to raise a standard, uh, I guess, for, for something that may imp- impact a game you're working on or have previously released, I, I think just recognize that that talking to the average person and trying to explain the development constraints you had uh, versus the developer of that game, I think it, it's it's either going to go one or two ways. You're either going to find someone who's very tuned in and is interested in that stuff and is willing to, to agree with the concessions you're proposing, but I think most people uh, probably don't care. <laughs> if I'm being honest, they, you're going to have to instead try and explain to them how, like, Yes, my RPG is not as good as this RPG, but here are some ways it's a bit different. Here's some ways it's interesting. Here are some ways uh, that it is maybe better. Like the, even though as a whole package, it, it might be subjectively worse um, on most people's you know scales. That's probably a more likely to approach to work with someone. And saying, well, I know you love Baldur's Gate 3, but that was made by these many people, blah, 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 blah. So just just keep that in mind when you play my game. It's just, it's just not, I just don't think it's a reasonable ask because I think it's just going to bounce off it, off most people at the end of the day. And I just don't think it's the right approach to take. That I think we should about call it an episode, Zach. It's been good to get back in the saddle and get the microphones out and actually record our thoughts and discussions and hot takes and rambles once again. It is. And uh, if you're, you know, where we don't want you to be objective or subjective, we just want you to either be honest and give us a five-star review or a review of, of positive notes on whatever podcast service you use, either by lying if you don't believe it's a five star and just giving it five anyway or if you believe it give it give it five stars uh that would be my tip so uh don't compare us to other podcasts just give us five stars thanks (laughs) i couldn't agree with that more and uh if people want to contact us if people want to reach out and give us suggestions on episodes beggar still appear on our podcast or just Tell us how great we are. How can they do that, Zach? Yeah, well, we are still uh, on all the same social media channels we've always been on for now. Again, it's been a running joke for almost too long. I don't know when Twitter's going to die. But yeah, at Blowcart Pod on Twitter is still there um, for now. Uh, reach out there. We have not delved into any new ones yet because we don't know which new one is going to take off. and. We, we, and we're barely keeping alive Twitter, let alone if we had another one. Um, but we are on Facebook, so you can reach out to us there. I, I will see the messages. I think, Brendan, you're also able to see messages somewhere in the messages there. Also at Blowcart Pod, or you can actually search Blowing Cartridge Podcast. Either should work. And lastly, you can email us if that is your preferred choice of communication at blowingcartridge at gmail.com, I think. Correct. No S. Yes. Yes. That's the one I got there. See, after all these months, I, I haven't um, haven't lost it. Uh, or maybe I gained it because I, I wasn't great to begin with. One or the other. Uh, but yeah, if you want to find me personally, I am at Egorino, E-G-G-E-R-I-N-O. Uh, I am on threads by the same tag, but that's mostly because 
I just thought I'd give Threads a shot and I used it one day and I haven't checked it since. So I can't guarantee your response there yet, but, but I am there. Um, and if you're in Europe, that's useless to you because apparently Threads isn't even available there. But what about you, Brendan? Where can people find you? So as always, people can find me on Twitter at Camazoid. Uh, I think Threads is actually in the UK, but I have not set it up yet, so I'm not there yet. And yeah, tweet me. I yeah, still tweet occasionally. That's what, that's I'm actually, I'm actually playing. I'm actually playing and finishing games at the moment, so that is a new thing. So follow my endeavours there. And yes, Brexit was all about Britain getting Threads. Yeah, you that know, it's a long game. <laughs> Keep our social media data collection active. But yeah, uh, again, if you are a regular listener and if you haven't reached out, please do. Particularly, we're keen to get feedback on this episode, particularly around audio quality. Again, we're trying something new to try and expedite our production time of the show. And we're hoping it doesn't cause any dip. Um, but if it does, please let us know. And please also let us know if it matters to you. That's probably the other aspect. Because like, even if you notice the difference, do you care? If you don't care, that's valuable data for us. So uh, let us know because, again, we are on a social media platform. We do not have the ability to monitor you 24-7 and collect that data ourselves. You need to, to vocalize it to us in some fashion. Um, yet. You don't have the power yet. Star. Yet. One day um, we'll be monitoring you. That is not today. Um, but thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully you'll be listening to us again fairly soon. But until then, uh, have a fantastic insert the time of day. It is wherever you're listening. <laughs>